This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Title. The Good Fight. See if this works. Fade in. Exterior, Los Angeles, day 1946. Aerial shot, tracking a motorcade as it snakes around hairpin bends, cut through rural, hilly terrain thick with foliage. Zoom in on the black limousine as it pulls off the road and sweeps through high gates opened by uniformed guards. Close on tires of limousine as it comes to a halt on the gravel drive. Slowly pull out to reveal a vast 22-bedroom ranch. Draped down the front, two large red banners. The banners are adorned with swastikas. Pure science fiction, right? But that wasn't how it sounded in the 40s, back when the Nazis were keeping a close eye in California. Nazis determined to stop the march of the mighty American war machine. No American state was more important because California was rising fast. Money and people were pouring in. More money, more people than ever before. 10% of the entire U.S. war budget. And money plus people equals power. But be in no doubt, Nazis were moving among all those new arrivals to the Golden State. Okay, time for some pyrotechnics. Fade in. Exterior. Giant airframe hangar. Los Angeles, night. World War II. The large doors to the hangar are open on a hot, steamy evening. A young man emerges from the hangar, close on his face. He looks around expectantly, furtive, nervous. Pull out, a speeding car comes into frame, a Pontiac Streamliner. The young man jumps in, and the car accelerates away. Slow zoom on the hangar. A man emerges. He's on fire. Dissolved. Nazis started recruiting in California in the early 30s, and the desert dust proved surprisingly fertile. Anti-Semitism was big. So was the KKK. The Nazi plan? Bomb factories, seize munitions, and kill Jews. Into our picture steps Midwesterner Leon Lewis, 45, modest, Jewish, a six-foot-one law graduate. A veteran of World War I. From 33 onwards, Lewis got worried, very worried, about Adolf. Not everyone shared his concern. The L.A. police chief didn't mind Nazis, and the feds were too busy chasing reds. But Lewis couldn't stand by, so he took matters into his own hands and did what any sensible fellow would do. He assembled his own spy ring with one simple aim, to chip away at California's Nazi network. It would be a long game. Ten years of cat and mouse. But his outfit of military veterans, wives and daughters infiltrated every fascist group in L.A. And they got pretty good at playing Nazis. But there was a problem. Even spooks need to pay the rent. And neither the state nor D.C. were willing to stump up. Lewis had an idea. Fade in. Exterior. Hillcrest Country Club, Los Angeles. Night. Close on red brake lights, illuminating clouds of exhaust smoke pull back to reveal a line of five limousines queuing up. In the distance, we see a doorman opening the door of each car as it pulls up to the entrance. Interior, private dining room. 
Six chairs are arranged around an oval table in an oak-paneled room. At each place, two documents. Close on double doors, they swing open, and six men stride in. The scene was set for a powwow between Hollywood's head honchos, among them Louis B. Mayer and Jack Warner. Leon Lewis was going to tap them for money. The documents laid before them? Nazi propaganda, lambasting the Jewish-dominated movie industry. The studio bosses coughed up. The money allowed Lewis to run agents everywhere that mattered, in the movie studios, in the state government, and in the aircraft factories. And it allowed them to reach the highest positions in California's fascist underworld, positions where they could do the most damage. Lewis held the Nazi threat at bay. Until Pearl Harbor, then the FBI took over. And old Leon Lewis had a long list of names ready and waiting for them. The war was good for California. California found itself, put itself, at the heart of the U.S. war effort, in every field. Science was on the march, cutting-edge science, the best brains with the biggest budgets. A powerful equation of physics, big business, and federal defense dollars. California's universities helped develop the aircraft and rockets that turned the tide of the war. And a whole new world of electronics was born, with Stanford University at its center. Cut to, today, Stanford University. A woman sits on a bench outside Green Library. Students cycle past on their way to lectures. The sun shines. In the beginning, shall we say, this was really an agricultural area. It was known as the Valley of the Heart's Delight. The woman is Leslie Berlin, project director for the Silicon Valley Archives. For as far as you looked, there were just acres and acres of incredibly beautiful fruit trees. With World War II, the economy started to shift. Little companies that had started to spring up, tiny electronics companies, many of them with connections to Stanford, suddenly had a customer base that was enormous. If you think about who your dream customer might be, how about someone who has essentially unlimited resources And that, of course, was the United States Department of Defense. In some ways, you can say that the Department of Defense was Silicon Valley's first venture capitalist. And in a little place called Palo Alto, Mr. Hewlett and Mr. Packard set up business in a garage. They worked on counter-radar technology, and there was a bonus. War gave them a new mass market for all their other inventions. And the people, they just kept coming. We are seeking more men and more women. To the aircraft factories, tens of thousands of women. To the shipyards, 150,000 African Americans. And to the fields, 200,000 Mexicans. Al Camarillo of Stanford University. So many people that had worked in agriculture left for the cities because they're way better paying jobs if you could get into the aircraft industry or the, the naval ship building industry. So the United States realizes this and goes to its ally, its neighbor to the South, Mexico, and, and basically says, we would like to import Mexican workers seasonally. One of the sad tales about this is, many sad tales, is that they were a super exploitable workforce think about this. You come into the United States and they spray you with DDT first. We have photographs of people actually being sprayed in the face and the body because they have to de-louse the Mexicans before they come in. It's deplorable what these men have to go through. And it gets worse. 
The whole metropolitan area of Los Angeles, Southern California, is ringed by major military installations, right? One of them is within easy walking distance to the largest concentration of Mexican-Americans. There had been tensions between sailors as they went on leave into downtown Los Angeles, and it breaks out basically an all-out war for several nights in Los Angeles. Anyone that looked Mexican-American was tagged, beat up, usually stripped naked, left in the streets. So night after night, there were these waves of uh, violence. Here you have Mexican-American young men volunteering by the tens of thousands into the military, shedding enormous amount of blood and casualties, especially in the Pacific Theater. And yet at home, they're under assault. The war changed California, and it changed Hollywood. Emily Carmen of Chapman University. World War II changes Hollywood production quite dramatically in terms of its audience, its distribution patterns, and its content. The domestic audience became central because the foreign markets cut off. And when the United States formally enters the war, President Roosevelt asked the studios for their help in using movies to help convince a very isolationist American public who did not want to get involved to care. They also were making a lot of movies in the war years. I mean, these are very successful financial years for the movie studios in the U.S. Okay, here's a scene you'll know. I didn't write this one, if only I had. Interior. Rick's Cafe, night, close on Ilsa. She glances down, her thoughts in another place, another time. Close on Sam, close on Ilsa. Her eyes moisten, her gaze intensifies as all the pain of the past comes back into focus. Wide shot, double doors swing open. Rick walks through, moving swiftly, smartly. He pauses. He's heard the music. Slow push in towards Rick. He's momentarily confused, then angry. Casablanca. Fake, foolish, and fanciful, one critic called it. But audiences loved it. Yes, the war was good for Hollywood, and Hollywood was good for the war. Hollywood movies, sure, you can call them propaganda, they made the war seem winnable and essential, all those strangers brought together in the dark for an hour or two, comforted, transported. As those soldiers or sailors or airmen sailed away under the Golden Gate off to war, they vowed to return. And if they returned, many vowed to make their lives in California where they'd glimpsed the good life, a better life, a better world, a better future. Mark Stein of San Francisco State University. Before World War II, there was already a growing LGBT culture, what we would today call lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender culture in San Francisco. But World War II is generally regarded as a transformative moment for the city's queer cultures. San Francisco was a major uh, port, and it was a major congregation point for the military because of the Pacific theater of the war. And when gay servicemen, gay service women were discharged from the military, many who ended up in San Francisco decided to not go home because they had been shamed, they had been humiliated. So it was really after World War II that city's queer cultures really exploded. But for those who returned sailing back under that magnificent span, they returned to a very different California, more urban, more populous, 
1.6 million more people. More prosperous, sure. Wages had tripled. It was the gold rush all over again. A strange kind of miracle. But it was also a California with more problems, many more. A place more divided by class, by race. And what if our pal, Leon Lewis, Nazi hunter, dead of a heart attack, driving along the Pacific Coast Highway, May 54. He was history. The Nazis were history. And Hollywood? Well, they didn't know it back then, but World War II would be Hollywood's finest hour. The second half of the Californian century was about to begin. Next time, the founding father of Silicon Valley and the worst boss in the world. Trust me, you won't like this guy, William Shockley. The Californian Century is narrated by me, Stanley Tucci. The academic consultant is Dr. Ian Scott of Manchester University. Sources for this episode include The Whole Equation by David Thompson and Hitler in Los Angeles by Stephen J. Ross. Sound is by John Boland, and the editor is Philip Sellers. It's a BBC Radio Documentaries unit production for BBC Radio 4. The series is written and produced by Lawrence Grizel. Our stories begin, as so many do, with a body. I place the blade on a PM40, which is like a huge scalpel. Mortician Carla Valentine takes you from the mortuary to the scene of a crime to find out how a body got to her slab. People think fires destroy everything. What they don't realize is that actually fires don't necessarily get rid of all of the evidence. Mortem. Subscribe to the podcast on BBC Sounds.